Well, let that be our prayer as we get ready to open up God's Word together. And let me have you open up your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8 this morning. We'll read the first 17 verses of chapter 8 as we get ready uh, to do that. I like, uh, I like milestones and reminders of things that have happened and a reminder this morning that came to mind that it was 13 years ago this first Sunday of May that I first stood in this very pulpit, although it was not in this building. It was up in what at the time was Trinity Presbyterian Church. Uh, my first Sunday as your pastor was 13 years ago uh, this morning, to, and it's been a pleasure and an honor to open up God's Word uh, almost every Sunday morning uh, among you and, and see you grow, see children grow physically, and see you other ones grow physically, although I know we don't like to mention that too much, uh, but to see everyone grow spiritually as well. People have come and people have gone, but uh, the Lord has uh, these here, you here, that he has brought um, to worship here, and it continues to be an honor to be able to open up God's word for you this morning. This, and this morning we're going to read from Romans chapter 8, we'll read the first 17 verses, and we'll be looking particularly this morning at verses 12 through 17, but let's get the context here as we begin. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, let us hear the word of the Lord this morning. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit." For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word that has come to us 
by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit through the men that he uh, moved upon to write these words. We thank you for the Apostle Paul, particularly this morning, whom you have used uh, to bring these words to us. And we pray, O God, that you, by the same Spirit that inspired these words, would illumine our hearts. Uh, Help us to see what you are saying to us in these wonderful verses. And we pray that we would take the warnings that are here as well to heart. And Lord, through these words this morning, may you be given glory that you are so deserving of. We ask all this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. So our study over the book of Romans over the past few months uh, has brought us through many aspects of the teaching of Paul regarding our guilt and regarding then the grace of God, and that's still what we're looking at. We are here at this high point of the chapter, the high point rather of the book in this eighth chapter of Romans. And the Apostle Paul, who is in this section, beginning back in chapter 5, leading us through the benefits uh, that come to us by the fact that we who believe in Jesus Christ have, by the grace of God, been justified, declared righteous in the sight of God by God, through the redemption secured by Christ, through His life and His sacrificial death on the cross. And currently, Paul is speaking to us about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who, by the will of God and the intercession of Christ, is given to every believer, having regenerated every believer, bringing them from spiritual death to spiritual life, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in each and every one of the children of God, making them, you and I and every Christian, what Paul elsewhere calls a temple of the Holy Spirit, a place where the Spirit dwells. And in doing so, he ushers them into what is nothing short of a new realm of existence, what Paul has referred to here as being uh, in the Spirit. We are delivered, we have been delivered from a life that was bound up in what Paul referred to as the flesh, a way of referring to that old way of life under the old Adam that we were uh, reckoned under. But here in Romans 8, the Spirit has taken us out of that and has placed us squarely in what Paul appropriately refers to as the Spirit. In verses 5 through 11, which we looked at last week, Paul shows us that each person is either in the flesh walking in the flesh, living in the flesh, thinking according to the flesh, or is in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, living in the Spirit, thinking according to the Spirit. Being in the flesh, a non-Christian, is being focused on it and, and, and being focused of those things of the world, sin basically. And Paul told us last time that that, that existence is death. Such people, he said, are hostile to God. They do not, they cannot, they are unable to to please God. And Paul told us that being in the Spirit, as a way of referring to Christians, focused on the things of the Spirit, the things of God, Paul said, is life and peace. As we 
enjoy and, and the Holy Spirit works that eternal life in us. And that, that results in both abundant life while we are here and the promise, as we saw last week, of resurrection and new life on that last day. So what? That's a question that we ask very often. It's a good question to ask when you're studying the Scriptures, as you study a portion and say, what does that mean? Especially a doctrinal section. What's the, what's the outgrowth of that? What should I do with this information? It's a question that we often ask, and we should. And so this morning, Paul's going to tell us, so what? And he's going to do it by taking us from an obligation that we have through an explanation of that obligation, and then finally to the wonderful truth of our adoption as children of God. We start with the obligation. That's where Paul starts here in these verses. And it comes to us in verse 12. Look there. He says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. We can stop there. We are told... Beloved, we are, we are Christians who walk in the Spirit. We live with our minds set on the things of the Spirit. That is what a Christian does, as we've seen through these previous verses. And that Spirit who gave us spiritual life continues to work that life in us. And so therefore, or so then, as Paul says in verse 12, so then, brothers, he says, we are debtors. This is a, a conclusion from what, he, what we looked at last week. There are implications in our life and of our life, our life in the realm of the Spirit. And that implication, Paul gives us, the exhortation of Paul here is to remember that we are debtors. We have a debt. We owe something to someone to something. We have an obligation is another way of saying it. In fact, some English translations say that. The NIV, for example, says, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. And Paul wants us to be clear on that. And he wants us to be clear that that obligation, he says, look at it there in verse 12, is not to the flesh. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. As Christians, you have an obligation. And that obligation, and here's this concept again that we've run into several times here working through these, these chapters, our obligation is to live like what you are and not live like what you're not or what you were. Our obligation is not to the flesh. It is not to the pull of the world. And I don't need to tell you that even as Christians, that pull of the world is still there. But you Christians owe the flesh absolutely nothing. Nothing but to, as John said, to not love the world or the things of the world. It would only seek to destroy you. That's the, the purpose of the temptations of the world, of the, of the work of the evil one, is to destroy you. So have nothing for it. Paul says. The whole point is that we have been freed from the world. We've been freed from our slavish service of the flesh. 
And you don't now owe the world anything. You don't owe it any loyalty. In fact, the opposite is true. Your obligation is to forsake the world. That's our task, as Paul gives it here. We have a debt, but it's not to the flesh. We've seen this elsewhere as we've gone through these previous chapters. Just one example, Romans 6.1 says, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Are we to continue living in the world, living in the flesh with our minds set on the flesh, walking in the flesh? Are we to continue that? Paul says, by no means. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? That is the past. That is a a place, that is a realm that no longer holds you. That no longer should have any, that you should have any desire for. Our obligation is not to the flesh, Paul says. Not to live according to the flesh. Now when we read that, we kind of come up empty a little bit. Because we sense that there should be something else that something's missing, right? If we are debtors not to the flesh, to what are we debtors? To whom are we debtors? Well, Paul doesn't say it here. He doesn't state it, but he doesn't have to, does he? You know the answer to the question. We are debtors. Well, actually, we're going to, we're going to sing it at the end of the, the sermon this morning. We are debtors to mercy alone. We are beholden to the free and the abundant grace of God by which He has freed us from our debt to His justice. Remember, that's what we used to owe, a debt to justice. And that's what we were, what was hanging over our heads, that what, what was binding us up in the law was that debt that we had to God's justice. But we've learned in these chapters that we are free from that in our justification that that has been removed from us. So there is, chapter 8, verse 1, now no condemnation. There is no debt to justice for us anymore because Christ, your Savior, has paid your debt to justice. And so that debt is gone. And if you don't know, we should be very clear that a debt to God's mercy is much to be preferred to a debt to his justice. So how do we pay this debt that we owe, this debt to God's mercy in Christ, this unspoken debt that is implied here but is not, is not explicitly given? Well, if I can sneak a line in from, from later in the book of Romans, we pay this debt by presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God by not being conformed to the world, by not paying the flesh what it does not deserve, but paying to God what He deserves, our gratitude, our thanksgiving, a sacrifice, a a living sacrifice out of gratitude to God. So our, our obligation is clear both on the negative side and on the positive side. Even though Paul does not state the positive explicitly, it is very clear. It is an obligation. It is a debt to God's mercy and to His grace and to His pity. 
never ever to the flesh. That's the obligation. Now Paul's going to explain that even more, so we have an explanation here coming in the following verses. This this really carries on the thought of verse 12. Why is it so important that we recognize this obligation? Why is it so important that we uh, recognize the obligation that we do not have? That we understand where all of this lies and where it most assuredly does not lie. He answers there in verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now we might ask why he's even bringing this up. Remember he's speaking, look back at the beginning of verse 12. He says, so then, brothers. He's speaking to Christians here. So why is he bringing up this question of of living according to the flesh because we've said we as christians do not live to the flesh that is not our category any longer we live according to the spirit so why does he he give this warning well there are several reasons that we could give one is that not everyone who says lord lord is one of god's children Not everyone who claims to be a Christian is a Christian. And so as Paul speaks, he speaks to them. And there's another reason as well, and that is because, beloved, although we owe no debt to the flesh, we very often act as if we do. That's what we do every time we sin. Every time we we choose our will over God's will. We are acting as if we owe something to the world as if we owe some allegiance or some obedience to the world. And even though we don't, we, we keep being drawn to that. It's like if you pay off your mortgage, but then you keep sending checks in. It's foolish. The flesh, the, the sinful tendency of our lives, while expelled by Christ's work, is an ever-present menace to us, an ever-present enemy that will be with us as long as we are here on this earth isn't that what paul remember talked about back in the second half of romans 7 i do not do what i want but the things that i hate those are the things that i do see he was drawn to that as well but we have to be concerned about that because of the truth that paul expresses here in verse 13 And it comes in two parts, two truths here that are laid down in this verse. The first is that if you set your mind on the flesh, if you live according to the flesh, he says, you will die. It's a statement of warning. If you live with your mind set on those things, the things of the flesh, the things of the world, if that's what you're pursuing, you are demonstrating then that you are living according to the flesh, that you are still in an unconverted state. Jesus said, by their fruits you will know them, and we might add here, by your fruits you will know yourself. Are you living according to the flesh? Is that, even though you're a member of of a church, are you living according to the flesh? Is that your focus, those things? And remember, we we looked at some of them over in Galatians chapter 5. Is that your horizon? Are you operating in that realm with that mindset with those values i'm not saying 
do you ever sin? But I'm saying, do you sin as a practice? Do you not grieve at your sin when you sin? Are you living with, as I said, that focus? If you are, then you are living according to the flesh. And Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Why? Because if you're living according to the flesh, you do not have the Spirit in you, and anyone who does not have the Spirit in them does not belong to Christ. And though it doesn't come out as well in our translation here of verse 13, the word translated will, you you will die, means you will necessarily. You will as a certainty. If you live according to the flesh, you must certainly die. You're going to. And we're not just talking physical death here, remember. It's very rare that 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 word is used in that sense in the book of Romans. You're going to die spiritually. You're going to die eternally if that is your focus, if you remain in that state is what Paul is saying. But, he says, and here's the second truth, second half of the verse, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Again, not because you are earning something by doing that, but because you are revealing something about your state by doing that. On the other hand, Paul Paul assumes this to be the case of his hearers, and I assume that to be the case here of our hearers this morning. The one who is living according to the Spirit will not be giving a place to the things of the flesh, to the things of the world, but he or she rather will be putting those things to death. Because that is what a Christian does. That is the practice of a Christian, is to be putting the things of the flesh to death, little by little, step by step, day by day, sin by sin. That is the practice of a Christian. Over in Colossians 3, Paul used some different words to say the same thing. After giving a list again of some of the deeds of the flesh, he said in verses 5 through 10, he says, in these you once walked, the same kind of terminology we've seen here, when you were living in them, you walked in them, but now, he says, you must put them all away. And he gives another list. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Lying. He says, don't do any of that seeing that you have put off the old self with his practices. Do you see what he says there? Put them all away because you have put them off. Be killing them off because you are not, you're not of the flesh. You don't walk according to the flesh. He's saying, live like what you are. In Ephesians 4.22, he says something very similar where he says, put off the old self. The imagery of the word is is a garment, a coat that you take off and toss aside. The imagery of Paul here in Romans 8 is even harsher. You know, it's 
take that garment off, throw it aside, and then get a stick and beat it until you cannot recognize it as a coat. Put it to death is what he's saying. And how do we do this? You know, it would be out of, to be out of touch with reality to say this is easy. But it is possible. It can be done. Not perfectly, not at all times, again, because of the sin that still dwells in us. But we can progress in it. And let me give you four things here from verse 13 that will help us. Four things that this verse says about this. And again, second half of verse 13 is where we're at. He gives us first the responsibility. He says, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. The responsibility is yours, beloved. No one can do it for you. In those verses from Colossians and Ephesians that I just read, the command is given to the believer. Now you must put them all away. You must put to death the deeds of the body. The responsibility is yours. It is personal. And it is mandatory. The second thing that we see here is the intensity behind it. You, Christian, are to put to death the deeds of the body. The imagery that Paul uses is very um, intentional, And it's very graphic. There's no room in the Christian life for toying with sin. The Christian's battle with sin is, well, it's presented as just that, isn't it? A battle. Christians are soldiers in the fight with sin. The uniform of the Christian is the full armor of God. The language of the conflict is to put it to death. The old language used to be that of mortification which is another way of saying, deathify it, put it to death. Christian, you, it's been said, you must be killing sin or it will be killing you. Treat every little sin in your life like you would treat a murderer that you found to be living in your house. Put it out firmly, finally, and with no thought of letting it back in later. Deal harshly with your sin, Christian. That's the idea that Paul gives here. That's the idea of putting it to death. And if you are a Christian, he says, you will be doing that. Not only that, the third thing, after the responsibility and the intensity, we see here the continuity. I say we see it, we, we, kind, we don't see it on the surface here. We can't really see it in English because of the, the limitation of English. But in the original, this gives the sense, when he says to put to death, it gives the sense of an ongoing action. We have to continually be putting sin to death, putting to death the deeds of the body. It's a war that never ends until you do. Every day is a new battle. Every temptation is a fresh assault as that sin that remains in us seeks to pull us back to live according to the flesh, to act like we have a debt to the flesh, like we used to live when that was our world. But it's not your world, Christian. So we must continually be putting to death those things. The boxer in the ring can't rest for a moment. A soldier on the battlefield 
has to always have his eyes open, always have his ears attuned, always to have his, his senses sharp. He must always have the appropriate gear on. He must always have his weapon ready because the enemy can attack at any time, and it's the same for us. That's how we have to be in our battle with the world and the flesh and the devil. The devil is part of that. And the scripture tells us that he is always roaming, always looking for someone to devour. Paul says, don't let it be you. Be on the offensive, putting sin to death. Being always ready, being always intense, and at every moment aware of your responsibility. But all of that is not even enough. There's one more thing that we have to see, and that is the ability. We saw the responsibility. Now we have to see the ability, and it comes from elsewhere. Look at verse 13, the second half again. He says, but if, what? By the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We understand, don't we? You should understand that the ability to stand in the face of these things is not found in ourselves. Even though we're justified, even though we're dead to sin, even though we're dead to the law, while we are in these bodies, there remains the necessity of putting sin to death in our bodies, and it is the Holy Spirit that makes it possible for us to do. We believe that the Spirit will do this, Christian. The true Spirit-indwelt believer, that's a little bit of a redundancy, there's no other kind. Um, The true believer will, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, and as a result, Paul says, you will live. How does the Spirit do that? Primarily, right here. Primarily through the the word that he has written and through his work of taking that word and making it effective in your life. That is how he does it. So if you are a Christian, you are struggling with sin. I don't know how many times I've talked to people who are struggling with sin and I get talking to them about their, their time in the word and it's zero or it's very low, and then they're surprised. I don't know why I sin so much. I don't know why I have a struggle with this sin. Are you ever in the Word? Well, no. Gee, Sergeant, I don't know why I can't kill these enemies that I come up against. Well, where's your sword? Well, it's in the bunkhouse. As one has said, duh, you've got to have your weapon. You've got to be ready, and the spiritual weapons that we have been given are given in the Word of God. And Paul says, if you're doing that, if you're putting that, the sins, the deeds of the body to death, you will live. And though that is true, though we believe that God will preserve His children so that they persevere in the faith, remember that that does not remove the need for us to persevere. We cannot, we dare not take the teeth out of the warning here of verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will, you must, you are about to die. But if by the Spirit, 
through the help of the spirit of holiness, you are continually putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So we see there's a difference between our justification and our sanctification, between our being declared right by God and our being made right by God. Our justification is completely the work of God. We make no contribution to it. But sanctification is empowered by God the Holy Spirit, but we have a part in it as well, and we cannot neglect that part. Again, it does not earn our salvation. That is all Christ's, all of grace, all of faith, with no input from us. But putting to death the deeds of the body again proves our salvation. Being concerned about that and putting to death those deeds are what show that you are in the Spirit, that you are walking according to the Spirit. It's still all of grace. It's still all of faith. But here and this we labor. With fear and trembling we fight to kill off the works of our old master, the flesh, in the manifestation of the the deeds of the body. Our obligation, Christian, is not to live according to the flesh. And the explanation is that we rather are to be putting them to death through the help of the Holy Spirit. How is it then that Paul can say that if we do this, we will live? Well, it's because of the statement of verse 14. And again, here he's just restating kind of what he has said before. He says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. He says what he's been saying before, but he adds some things to it, a couple of things here. First, he brings in a new idea to his vocabulary regarding the relationship between the Spirit and the Christian. He's been talking about the fact that you are in the Spirit. He said, and we've looked at, that you are living according to the Spirit, that you walk according to the Spirit. Now, he says, for all who are led by the Spirit. And that just fits in with all of this. It all basically means the same thing. Here, referring back to verse 13, he's acknowledging the work of the Holy Spirit. If we are putting the deeds of the body to death by the Spirit, it is because we are being led by the Spirit of God to do that. We're being directed, the word means, or guided or influenced by the Spirit. And those who are thus led, Paul says, And here's the second thing, the second new concept drawn here for the first time in the book of Romans. He says, those who are doing this, those who are led by the Spirit, are sons of God. That is, they are in a unique relationship with God, a special relationship to God, a relationship that is is in actuality, and the language that is used is that of a family where we get this whole idea of calling God Father. We are called the sons of God. A relationship of uh, filial intimacy, closeness, and the privileges of a family. And that brings Paul to what will be his topic for uh, for the rest of these verses, and that is the doctrine of adoption. Adoption. He continues to describe for us the working of the Holy Spirit. He he tells us of the blessing that that brings. The leading of the Holy Spirit in the Christian's sanctification is not, Paul says here, a step backwards. 
Look again at verse, or look at verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Again, note that first word. We talked about those last week. Those little words are so important. He begins by saying, for. He said in the last verse, we're sons of God. If we're led by the Spirit, we're sons of God. For, or because, this is happening. This is how we are called the sons of God. We have been delivered out, he says, of our slavery. You did not receive the spirit of slavery. We learned that back in chapter 6, didn't we? Remember? And we have been made slaves of righteousness, slaves of God. But if you remember what we saw there in chapter 6, and as Paul teaches us here, the term slavery is, is almost not worthy of the, the baggage that, that it carried then and as it carried, that it carries now. Because being a servant of God, a slave of God, is to enjoy the most elevated form of freedom that can be imagined. And so the idea of being a slave to God is not a spirit of slavery that's associated here in verse 15 with fear. Listen to these verses, verse 15 through 17. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Slavery to sin is a terrible thing. It is a fearful thing. Sin is a harsh taskmaster, and it leads to a dreadful end. There has never been in the annals of the nations of the world a more oppressive and cruel slavery than is experienced by those who are enslaved to sin, which we all once were. But God, beloved, has freed us from that slavery. And he has given to us a spirit that is not, verse 15, a spirit of slavery. Not a, a spirit that would cause us to fall back into a, a posture of fear. Fear was appropriate when we were living in the flesh, when we were under bondage to sin. Now it is not, and the spirit that God has given to us as he makes us his servants is not one that would draw us back into that kind of fear. By the way, you might notice there, if you're looking at verse 15, that the first time the word spirit appears in this verse, it comes with a small s, which would be a reference to the human spirit. And then the second time, with an uppercase S, meaning the Holy Spirit. The problem is that in Greek, there's no difference. Uh, There's no different spelling. And so context has to determine which is meant. Should it be translated in the first case? The second case is pretty easy. But in the first case, there's difference of opinion, whether he's speaking of the spirit of slavery, the the idea of slavery, the, the feeling of slavery that we have, or whether he's talking about another title, Uh, that is contrary to the idea of slavery. It's not the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, making you a slave. Um, It it really, there's not really much of a difference to the sense of the passage. What you have been given is not a slavish relationship 
which should cause you to be fearful of being back under that yoke of sin that you used to be under, is what he's saying. But rather, God has given to you, Christian, you have received, he says, the spirit of adoption. And certainly, he's speaking here of of spirit with an uppercase S, a spirit that is part of the great and wonderful benefits of being adopted children of God. We're all pretty familiar with the idea of adoption in our time. It was very similar in the in the Roman Empire, which is almost certainly Paul's background here to, to his uh, statement, adoption then in the Roman Empire resulted in the adopted person being taken out of his previous state and placed in a new relationship with his new, uh, it was called a father's family. All of the old debts that the person had, because you could be adopted later, were canceled and in very real effect, the adoptee started a new life as a full member with full privileges of the family that adopted him. Adoption is scriptural, or uh, the doctrine of adoption, and let's hear this from our Westminster Shorter Catechism, for us is an act of God's free grace by which we are received into the number and have, all, have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. It's the same thing, so it fits perfectly to what Paul was saying. And in these last three verses, Paul lays out several aspects of our adoption. Our adoption into the family of God. That's the only way that we can become children of God is by adoption. God had one natural child, one only begotten son, and none of us are him. But we are all real sons and daughters of God through adoption. In these last three verses, we learn several things. First, we gain a knowledge of our adoption. It's really conceived so clearly that the Holy Spirit is himself referred to as the spirit of adoption. It is the the spirit who is a sign of our adoption, who comes with it, who is sort of the badge of our adoption. Because we, we read earlier that anyone who does not have the spirit of God does not belong to Christ. And so the one that does have the spirit of God in him is an adopted son of God. That's the first thing. The second we've already mentioned, and that's the freedom involved in our adoption. It's not a return to that corrupted and corrupting bondage to sin. It is a freedom now that we receive to be able to serve God. A glorious freedom. Thirdly, we have the privilege in our adoption of access to our Father. This is a full adoption, not a partial, not a some has held back. This is a full adoption. We now call God Father. And we get it in Aramaic, and we get it um, in, well, it was Greek, but it's translated into English. It's interesting that they translate the Greek, but not the Aramaic. But it's a picture of, of the intimacy of the the access. We are adopted as sons. 
And then also we have the privilege of access, and that's, that's the, the intimacy, that's the closeness. It is through the Spirit that we have the ability to cry out to God in family language, in child to father. The Holy Spirit is the one, he says, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And again, that Abba is a term of intimacy. It's a term that Jesus himself used in Mark 14.36 as he prayed to his father and our father. Intimacy that is shown by God giving us his spirit to dwell in us. So there's a knowledge and there's a freedom and there's an access and there's an intimacy. Fifthly, in verse 16, we have this wonderful statement that is a verification of our adoption. Not with some paperwork, not with a form that God sends you to say you are a son of God, but by a living, indwelling verification. Again, the Holy Spirit. Who, Paul says in verse 16, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. There are a couple ways of looking at that too. There is is an objective sense in which the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit. Through the Word of God, it tells us what it takes to be a child of God. And when we recognize ourselves as being um, a possessor of that objective knowledge and that objective uh, understanding, we can say, yes, the Scripture says I'm a spirit of God, or I am a child of God, and so I am. So there's that objective sense. But that's probably not the main thing that he's saying here. What he's saying here is that that, that the Holy Spirit bears witness in our spirit or, or on our spirit, our soul, a realization that he gives of our state. The Holy Spirit not only makes us God's children, but he makes us aware that we are God's children. And then one final aspect of our adoption is given in verse 17. He says, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The result and the benefit of being a child of God, an adopted child of God, is that we have an inheritance from God. This is echoed over in Galatians chapter 4, verse 7, which if you read that, you'll see many of the themes that we've been looking at this morning there. But in verse 7, Paul writes, So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Our inheritance, we learn from the apostle Peter, is imperishable and undefiled and unfading and kept in heaven for you. It's a sure inheritance. It's not going to go away. It's not going to decay. It's not going to rust. No thief's going to break in and steal it. It is an inheritance which consists of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit Himself, a place in God's family, a place in God's house, a place in God's country, that true promised land, that city that has foundations, the new Jerusalem. So many things we see in the Scripture, all of the promises that we see, and the idea just quickly overflows our capacity to to comprehend and to keep a hold of, which is how Paul describes it elsewhere 
In 1 Corinthians 2.9, he says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. That last phrase is important. For those who love him. We'll see that later in chapter 8 come up again. For those who love God, who are called But as Paul ends verse 17 here, he reminds us that we must count the cost of all of this. Being known as a child of God and identifying ourselves with Christ introduces us to something else that is part of our inheritance, and that is a share in his suffering. As that was the path to glory for the Son of God, so it is the path to glory for the sons of God through suffering. And we must embrace this as well. If we are to receive the glory of being a child of God, it's a, it's a blessing. Over in, in Philippians, Paul speaks of how we have received the blessing not only of, of knowing Christ, but of suffering for Him. It's a blessing. So let us rejoice in it even as we rejoice in the rest of the aspects of our adoption as sons of the Most High. Sealed by the Spirit, the Spirit who works in us to put to death the deeds of the body and and we then offer up our bodies as living sacrifices to God. That, he says, is our reasonable, our spiritual service. That is how we discharge the debt that we owe to the mercy of God for such a great salvation as that that we have in Christ through faith. And to that, God's people say, amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your adoption of us. We were, Lord, we were not orphans. We belonged to a horrible master. We were bound to sin. We were living in the flesh, which is death. But you, O God, have brought us out of that. You have transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your Son. You have adopted us as your children fully, completely, that we are able to, with the most intimate phrases that there are, to call you our Father, to come to you with our hurts and our needs and our joys and our struggles and to say, Abba, Father, thank you. Abba, Father, help me. And we know that you hear and we know that you love us because you have given to us your spirit, the proof of our adoption. We pray, Father, that you would continue to work in us as your children and help us to rejoice in the knowledge that we are. In Jesus' name, amen.